Welcome to Twill Week in Health Law, the vertically integrated podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. We're recording this episode on November 18th, 2017. I am Nicholas Terry, a law professor at Indiana University McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. And my co-host, who is just back from an exhausting trip to Asia during which he tried on lots of different jackets, is... Frank Pasquale, a law professor at the University of Maryland School of Law in Baltimore, Maryland. Just a very quick reminder that uh, we're going into the festive season and nothing says the holidays like a Twill t-shirt. So go to twill.com and follow our merch link and buy several. Um, they come in gray and gray. And I think you can now get them in gray. <laughs> no, I think there's some white ones. And we've got some long sleeve ones I think are coming online soon. Anyway, so uh, Frank, this week we welcome back our friend and Northeastern University School of Law professor Leo Bledsky. Professor Bledsky holds a joint appointment with the School of Law and Bouvet College of Health Sciences. His expertise is on the use of law to improve health uh, with focuses on drug policy, reducing the spread of HIV and other infectious diseases, and of course the role of the criminal justice system in shaping public health outcomes. Great to have you back on the pod, Leo. And once again, thanks for that uh, standing room only presentation at our law school last week. And law school friends around the country or anyone else who's doing uh, policy, who's doing opioids, invite Leo. He's great. Thank you so much, Nick and Frank. It's great to be back. So just a couple of notes quickly before we start our conversation. As we previewed last week, repealing the individual mandate has now been included in the tax reform bill. That'll free up more than $300 billion in government funding over the next decade that can now be used to finance uh, proposed tax cuts. The reason why cancelling a tax frees up money is that it will drive 13 million people away from health insurance, um, according to the CBO. And it will also worsen the risk pool and trigger a death spiral. Um, so uh, we'll see how that goes uh, now with the, uh, the ruling party putting all of their eggs in a single budget basket. The second point to note is also budget related. Because of the pay-as-you-go or pay-go law that dates from 2010, I have to admit until I read it in Vox, I wasn't sure what that was, there could be a 25 billion cut in Medicare. Remember, Medicare was never going to be touched. Well, 25 billion later, maybe it will be. The reason is the Republicans are trying to pass this 1.5 million trillion tax cut and it could trigger, according to the CBO, a sequestration across major mandatory spending programs like Medicare, unless they tweak their numbers somewhere else. So uh, uh, cuts to Medicare also on the table. Uh, third, the California Reproductive Freedom Accountability Comprehensive Care and Transparency Act, which I'm sure you two gentlemen know is known as the FACT Act. Basically, the California legislature was of the opinion that what were called crisis pregnancy centers or CPCs, some of which are licensed, some of which are unlicensed, employed intentionally deceptive advertising and counseling practices that often confuse, misinform, and even intimidate women from making fully informed, time-sensitive decisions about critical health care translation, contraception, and abortion. And there are approximately 200 CPCs in California. So this statute said that you, these centers had to display information as to whether they were licensed or not, I believe, and also details about where you could go for fuller treatment and advice at uh, 
uh, regular uh, healthcare facilities that did perform abortion. So the Ninth Circuit used intermediate scrutiny to adjudicate on the licensed CPCs who had brought a First Amendment argument, and the Ninth Circuit upheld the statute. The Supreme Court this week granted cert. So potentially this is another case to add to this rather interesting and possibly one day a seminar, Frank, uh, these sort of health regulatory cases involving speech challenges. So Sorrell, Washlager, you know, the, the Docs versus Glocks case in the 11th Circuit, the Corona off-label use case, and other things that we've discussed on the pod from time to time. Yes, and two quick follow-ups on those uh, excellent lightning round topics, Nick. Uh, one being with respect to the First Amendment, I just want to remind everybody of uh, Chris Robertson's work. I think Chris was on with uh, Aaron Kesselheim earlier uh, this year or last year, and his uh, recent piece uh, on the tip of the iceberg, uh, First Amendment challenges to health regulation, is very timely in all those areas. The second is um, with respect to the CBO or with the the uh, repealing the individual mandate, creating more budgetary room for there to be um, tax cuts for the wealthiest, uh, largely and uh, sort of um, hide and go seek tax cuts for uh, lots of others that I guess are around now, but are probably disappearing by 2025 or so. Uh, in, under these plans. I just uh, have to remark about the uh, fair weather friendship of the Congressional Budget Office. Um, the CBO has been sort of the hero of a lot of health policy technocrats throughout 2017. There are constant efforts to um, point to it and its methodology as the um, be-all and end-all of rational uh, policy. And of course, you know, as Stephanie Kelton, one of the uh, very interesting theorists of monetary, modern monetary theory, uh, said on Twitter today, um, live by the CBO, die by the CBO. So um, I just wanted to point out that, you know, it's, it's really troubling to see that, you know, there was so much emphasis on CBO over the year, and it may well turn out that the most, perhaps the most reckless uh, method of all of unraveling Obamacare will go forward um, with a boost from CBO's uh, budgetary methodology. On the other hand, at a time when we have so much administration promulgated fake news to get any kind of data, I think is important. <laughs> yes, <laughs> true, true. So let's turn to our primary topic today, the opioid crisis. And I guess, Leo, it would help to maybe frame the crisis, the tragedy for us. Are we at the leading edge? Are we in the middle of the curve? Are we coming towards the trailing edge? I have a suspicion that there isn't one answer to that question, but would depend, for example, on the substances you're going to discuss, whether they're prescription or uh, fentanyl, for example. And I'm guessing also that the idea that this isn't a crisis, but many, many, many local crises uh, probably comes into your answer to some extent. Thanks, Nick. I, so I think in answering that, it actually, in many ways, is helpful to dovetail to your two topics uh, that you just discussed in the lightning round. One being, uh, you know, the fate of healthcare coverage and health insurance in this country. And the other being uh, somewhat more tangentially, you know, defining treatment. So in the case of these pregnancy crisis centers, um, <clears throat> you know, you're basically bumping up against, you know, what are providers allowed to say to potential consumers or actual consumers about the services that they're providing 
providing. And in many cases, that, that is a, uh, a reflection or a mirror image of what's going on in the drug treatment sector where uh, you have essentially providers, unscrupulous providers, advertising their services for addiction, um, services that are not, in fact, addiction treatment and should never be defined as such. But because those definitions are nebulous to them um, and are not regu- tightly regulated, we're basically functioning in a more or less a free-for-all zone where people can fleece consumers by advertising their services in one way and actually providing care in a different way. Can I jump in on that, uh, Leo? Because I actually just gave a talk on this uh, in Germany uh, with respect to uh, Google's efforts. Um, and I guess there was a expose about in The Verge on right. uh, a lot of these treatment centers. And I was so fascinated by the fact that, you know, you had this revelation that essentially uh, very unscrupulous lead generators were manipulating Google search results. They were getting to the top. Um, it was revealed. Then Google basically stopped a lot of the advertising. Then it turned out that the same companies that were really good at gaming the search rankings ended up also being very, or gaming the advertising also ended up being very good at gaming uh, organic search results to the extent that they were actually hijacking rival entities' pages because there's some sort of peer-to-peer thing where you can like change your uh, phone number or Google doesn't really supervise the changing of phone numbers. So the fraudulent ones would change the phone numbers of the non-fraudulent ones. And I just found this fascinating in the way in which it suggests that the governance of a sizable portion of opioid policy is actually being outsourced in a way to Google, which doesn't really have any interest uh, in doing it in a very thoughtful way. <laughs> just It was just fascinating. So, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that is, uh, uh, and Frank, that obviously interfaces with a lot of your interests in te- and Nick too, in technology and, you know, sort of internet governance. Uh, those are not areas of my expertise, but I think that, you know, in, in this conversation about where we are, you know, there is, of course, the narrative of, about the iatrogenic sources of this crisis, which I think, you know, bears some scrutiny and we can talk about that if that if that's of interest. But how we get out remains to be rooted in many ways on the our ability to retool the healthcare system to be a source of benefit and not a source of harm to the extent that the healthcare system is at least theoretically providing substance use treatment. Our inability to, to shape it and to regulate it, whether with command and control tools, with financial incentives, with the tort system, you know, all of those regulatory mechanisms that theoretically come into play when you're talking about, you know, providing healthcare services to people who are experiencing distress um, and, you know, very high risk of fatality, we have not deployed those tools in a way that has shaped the sector towards, you know, higher benefit and less harm, at least not substantially so. There's obviously a lot of efforts on that front, but in, in many ways, the the answer to, to Nick's question about where we are is going to depend on how quickly we can scale up and rapidly scale up the capacity of our substance use treatment sector system to be able to deploy evidence-based interventions for people who are in need and bring those people into the fold of the healthcare system to be able to not just address their addiction needs, but also their other needs, because oftentimes addiction is uh, intricate, 
intimately connected with pain needs, uh, mental health needs, and other kinds of problems that people may be experiencing. So to go back to next question, the, you know, where we are, I think is that the crisis is going to get worse until, uh, you know, before it gets better. Uh, I think that many of the tools that we're deploying right now, the policy tools and the legal tools, especially are not well calibrated to address the crisis from a kind of a evidence-driven perspective. You know, we appear to be at a moment where we still continue to sort of express the desire to study the problem rather than to act. And, uh, uh, you know, the president's commission is just concluding its work. And uh, I actually found their conclusions and their 52 recommendations to be fairly sensible. There's definitely areas that are not as evidence-driven as others, but in many ways, their findings echo the findings of the National Academies of Science report, as well as the Surgeon General's report from last year. So I just think that there's actually pretty broad consensus on a number of issues, including the fact that only about 10% of folks who need access to evidence-based substance use treatment, that being maintenance therapy with buprenorphine and methadone, and perhaps, you know, with emerging data with long-acting naltrexone, there's pretty broad agreement that we we need to scale that up and and roll it out and make it accessible and make it integrated with primary care and make it affordable. And yet we continue to fail most people on that front. So until we're able to do that, I don't think we will bend the curve of the crisis. And the reason why we're seeing numbers, uh, increasingly grim numbers, uh, and the new CDC data that's going to come out in in December is going to be even more grim. The reason why we're continuing to see those numbers is because we're failing to meet those needs. And uh, I'm I'm not optimistic in the short term. Yes, that's one thing we know from being health people. The healthcare system is mighty slow to change. And whether you're talking about upstream changes as to far as prescribing practice, which perhaps isn't the absolute priority at the moment, or downstream changes where we look as to how to treat these folks and and uh, deal with the problems. Uh, there's so such slow movement in contrast to what I'm I'm seeing as as really quite scary predictions as to the increase in in sort of caseload. I mean, places like uh, I was reading something um, out of Florida. There was a Florida NPR report earlier this week saying that there's going to be another massive spike in. They're talking 20, 25, maybe 30 percent increases. Um, maybe more. Uh, in the first six months uh, of last year, they had five carfentanil cases. Uh, since then, uh, they've had uh, hundreds of deaths since June of 2016. You know, one of the reasons why that's happening all over the country, not just Florida and not just Indiana, is in many ways that, you know, the Scott County, Indiana situation was a harbinger of the same situation around the country, which is that, you know, the first phase of the crisis was characterized by essentially, you know, folks using prescription medications, in many cases, they were diverted, either bought on the black market or stolen or just given from friends and family. And the overdoses that were common were overdoses from a combination of prescription drugs and other sedatives, basically. So benzodiazepines or alcohol were very common. And the poisonings were, by and large, you know, based on this polypharmacy 
to use. What happened was that we deployed a lot of structural interventions, including limiting prescribing, cracking down on unscrupulous prescribing, deploying prescription drug monitoring systems, reformulating drugs to be quote unquote abuse deterrent, to be, you know, harder to crush and to snort and to inject. All of these were supply side interventions that were designed to limit people's access to prescription opioids and to limit diversion. Now, because those efforts were not mirrored with efforts to address the demand, just to address the supply, the demand remained strong. And so people who were dependent on opioids or were addicted to opioids shifted towards black market alternatives. And and this is why, you know, Scott County, Indiana saw such a huge spike in HIV cases because a lot of people who who had been using the drugs through, you know, oral ingestion routes started using injectable forms of drugs. So that included both prescription medications that were available on the black market, as well as the, you know, street drugs like heroin. Now, the issue is, is that once you have folks who have shifted from prescription supplies to black market supplies, even if they were getting those medications through diversion or channels that were not medical channels, if if you're using prescription drugs, the supply chain is of known quantity and is of known purity. So even if you're snorting, you know, crushing up and snorting those pills or injecting those pills, you know what you're getting. There's a quality control system in place, even for non-medical use. As soon as folks start shifting to the black market, you've just increased their risk precipitously. Once they're exposed to, to black market medications, which are usually counterfeit medications, or to heroin, um, that supply is completely unregulated. And and this is why once folks transition to that realm, the overdose risk based on, you know, a single use has much more overdose risk than a single use of a prescription medication. And, you know, the other collateral harm from that transition is also that it's also incredibly hard to engage people in the healthcare system once they've transitioned to the black market. So, you know, in a case of Florida, Florida had a uh, disproportionate number of pill mills and other unscrupulous prescribers who were, you know, basically writing scripts right and left. And what law enforcement did is that they went in and they shut down a bunch of these pill mills and, you know, basically shut down those those access points for the, for the prescription drug. It would make sense if you had a, you know, kind of a comprehensive strategy to also engage those patients at the same time and to say, okay, you've been going to this pain clinic. This pain clinic has been functioning outside the law. Let us engage you in appropriate pain care as well as for those who need it, we will provide appropriate, you know, addiction care as well. This is not the approach that was taken. The approach that was taken was that basically you had a range of law enforcement interdiction interventions that shut down a whole lot of access points for people's prescription drugs, you know, whether or not the prescriptions were legitimate, it didn't matter. So, you know, a lot of people lost lost access to the supply chain. And as a result, they turned to black market alternatives. And that's why you're seeing the 
these numbers of folks who are dying from synthetic adulteration in the drug supply, you know, once once exposed, you're you're at much higher risk. Now, the other element of this is that you know there's been a lot of conversations about okay, well, what happened? Why did we see this huge uptick in uh, fentanyl or other synthetic adulteration of black market drugs? Well, that pattern is a natural sort of paradigm that happens uh, under sort of classical economic theory. So uh, once you have a market for a black market substance or any substance for that matter, you know, the natural pressure is to meet the demand, you know, at lower cost. And so for drug trafficking organizations, formulating synthetic opioids is pure, you know, economics. They can produce the same high or the same, you know, opioid effect at much lower cost with synthetic drugs. And so that those costs are also determined, of course, by the pressure uh, by law enforcement. So, you know, if we were talking about what it takes to traffic heroin across the border, uh, usually the southern border, it makes much more sense under the pressure of interdiction, under the pressure of surveillance to smuggle synthetic opioids like fentanyl, which, you know, basically uh, can produce the same potency at uh, 100th or even less uh, by uh, uh, volume than to continue to smuggle heroin, which, by the way, you have to grow in the field and process somewhere and then package and then ship, you know, through some kind of trafficking channel versus synthesizing something in the lab uh, from excipients and active ingredients that you can buy online, uh, usually from China. And uh, it's much, much easier and much more profitable and makes much more economic sense to focus on those synthetic alternatives. So in many ways, once we pushed a lot of dependent and addicted folks into the black market, we also applied pressure on the supply to make it more potent and to make it more risky. So what you're seeing in skyrocketing overdose rates is uh, in many ways an indictment of, of bad policy tools being applied to this problem. So you discussed many of those issues in the piece you did with Corey Davis, The Iron Law of Prohibition. But, I mean, having heard you talk about interdiction and enforcement, you are critical. You are critical of this being a criminal uh, issue uh, or a sentencing issue. But you don't view interdiction and enforcement as sort of just a binary choice. Um, you actually approach the criminal law issues from an evidence base and look at the utility of the criminalization, categorization, increased sentences, and so on. Uh, is, is there something that you, you can tell us about that? Well, in many ways, you know, I'm not a criminal law scholar. I'm a public health researcher. And I think that, you know, in many ways, criminal law and its application, you know, very imperfect application to the extent that that impacts health. That's where I engage with the conversation. And in many ways, ways the you know invocation of the word epidemic as applied to this crisis uh, I think gives me license to chime in on the deployment of various tools including criminal justice tools so if you hear politicians and many other experts talk about you know the crisis they pretty much uniformly will invoke interdiction and law enforcement 
enforcement tools to kind of, you know, quote unquote, crack down on dealers as one of the key elements of um, of the response. And I think that public health folks have a role and a voice um, that they need to use to scrutinize that and to ask, you know, does that actually, um, will that actually lead to better outcomes? And what kind of metrics of success are you applying to those interventions? Um, so, you know, I would, I'm not someone who would advocate, for example, for uh, complete deregulation of opioids, uh, as, as some folks, you know, in kind of the libertarian camp would. I think that opioids need to be regulated and need to be, their application needs to be tightly calibrated with, you know, to balance their risk and benefit. However, I do believe that the application of criminal justice tools, as we've used them thus far, appears to not serve public health. As an initial matter, the reason why so many people were able to turn to the black market in the first place, and, you know, during the first phase of the crisis where you saw the transition from prescription drugs to street supplies starting in around uh, 2007, 2008, is because heroin was largely widely available uh, in America on the black market and was much cheaper, in fact, than prescription medications, which were tightly regulated. As an initial matter, that right there is an indictment of our criminal justice approaches because we've we've deployed those approaches for a long time. We have we've had mandatory minimum sentences. We've had enormous investment in both international and domestic interdiction efforts, and yet we have not been able to reduce supply or raise prices or any of the metrics of success that we've kind of set out to meet uh, in in deploying these interventions. Now, in the years since that transition began, we continue to deploy the same tools. And we actually are in many ways are doubling down, for example, by passing new laws that that impose new mandatory minimums on people who are engaged in dealing heroin or fentanyl. We're now seeing a, a huge uptick in folks who are being uh, charged and prosecuted with drug-induced homicide or similar crimes. So, you know, when there's an overdose event, the person who supplies the drugs to the victim gets charged with uh, essentially with murder. We have not seen those kinds of interventions produce any measurable public health benefit. And the fact that we continue to emphasize and invest those kinds of interventions is problematic. Well, let's turn downstream then and trying to put a public health frame on this. One of the, I think I got to get this right, uh, Leo, one of, one of the slides that you showed last week, I think began, if it's an epidemic, treat it like one. There's several ways to think about it. So <clears throat> one is, you know, I think the word epidemic is something that we overuse in, in sort of colloquial parlance because the opioid crisis is not a contagious disease and you can't, you know, in, so for example, just, just to be kind of crude, if you had an outbreak of listeria that stems from a, you know, bad batch of hummus in, you know, Whole Foods or something showing my class 
bias, those kinds of outbreaks can be controlled through supply reduction in the sense that you can investigate where the bad batch of food is coming from. You can go in, you can shut down that supply, and you will have controlled the epidemic. The opioid crisis is not, does not lend itself to that frame. So in many ways, the framing of epidemic, in fact, has influenced the response to be focused on vector control, which is what an epidemic is. There's a there's an infectious vector, and opioids are not that vector. Opioids are, in fact, a indispensable healthcare tool and one that we are not going to be able to eliminate anytime soon. And so, you know, the answer cannot be to say, well, we're going to shut down this vector of, of the problem and then everyone will live happily ever after. So, so the epidemic framing has its limitations, but I think where it is useful is in, you know, kind of characterizing this as a public health issue and not an issue of, you know, in the criminal justice domain. If we're going to call it an epidemic, let's Let's invite epidemiologists to guide the response. And that is not something that we have really done yet. Certainly some public health folks have been at the table, but in many ways, the response is still very much guided and governed by folks in the sort of criminal justice arena and, you know, policy people who do not have the requisite training or expertise in how to address public health crises. I think, you know, the recent uh, proclamation of a public health crisis and how th the aftermath of that, you know, actually the lack of aftermath, in many ways, there hasn't really been a coordinated response and uh, sort of articulated plan on how to address the crisis beyond President's proclamation proclamation was focused primarily on prevention of the type that actually has not been found to work which is, you know, sort of just say no mentality. Overall, you know, the, the, a public health response basically would be focused on the three areas of public health prevention, which is primary, secondary, and tertiary. And those focus on sort of the, you know, downstream to upstream sort of spectrum of activity. So at the tertiary level, you know, after everything else has failed, you basically have opportunities to prevent death from overdose by deploying the overdose antidote naloxone, by educating people about what an overdose looks like, and essentially, you know, trying to intervene in a life-saving fashion to stop people who are starting to experience an overdose from actually dying. You know, that's a critical area of intervention and one which we haven't really yet tackled. One major piece of tertiary prevention, which is making sure that people have timely response response when they overdose is to have professional help to be summoned to the scene. And one of the reasons why it frequently is not summoned, so about half of the cases, witnesses do not call for help. Sometimes it's because they don't recognize an overdose when they see it. Uh, other times they do recognize it, but they are reticent and reluctant to call for help. Major reason why they're reluctant is because they are concerned about criminal liability to themselves or the victim uh, linked to to non-medical drug use. So you could have drug possession charges, paraphernalia charges, conspiracy charges, as well as other things like loss of parental custody, loss of, you know, basically violating the conditions of your lease.
police and other kinds of possible repercussions. So 911 Good Samaritan laws are laws that shield witnesses and victims from certain repercussions and the scope of those sort of amnesty provisions really varies across states. So there are examples like Georgia, for example, that have pretty broad coverage. So they, they for instance, shield the victims and the uh, witnesses from uh, warrants or other kinds of legal repercussions, not just drug possession charges. But none of the laws really provide the kind of comprehensive coverage that you would like to see to, you know, be as expansive as possible in providing amnesty. So one example of that is the drug-induced homicide charges that I mentioned earlier, uh, where folks are being charged with murder for providing drugs to uh, an overdose victim. Those kinds of prosecutions and laws are not covered by Good Samaritan provisions in any state. So, you know, basically you have Good, Good Samaritan laws that are designed to encourage people to seek help. And you have, on the other hand, these prosecutions and these laws that charge overdose witnesses or or others who are involved in the overdose with murder and getting mandatory minimums uh, that are decades long. Um, and oftentimes prosecutors, you know, really will come on, come on TV and, and kind of hammer at home that they're, that they're prosecuting people for overdoses that are happening in their community. And those messages are basically clashing. They're, they're, they're acting at cross purposes. And so it's hard to evaluate the impact of Good Samaritan laws, A, because they're heterogeneous, and B, because because there are, there are oftentimes other policy and prosecutorial interventions that are happening at the same time that might be muting their effect. But even so, some emerging research that hasn't been published yet, but, but is promising, uh, suggests that states that have passed uh, 911 Good Samaritan laws have slower rise in overdose rates than other states. Now, you know, these are obvi- obvi- obviously observational findings, and they could be confounded by other factors, but it certainly is uh, promising. And I I think the answer is to increase the reach and the promise of these interventions for those who seek help. If we move upstream, I think, you know, from tertiary to secondary prevention, we need to focus on making sure that people don't overdose in the first place. So um, improving people's access to drug treatment is in that category, uh, making sure that people have adequate health uh, care for other things that might be interacting with their substance use that make it more likely that they'll overdose. And addressing other risk factors for overdose, uh, such as polysubstance use and uh, including alcohol use and, uh, you know, mental health problems and other kinds of problems. And then moving on to primary prevention is where you start talking about, you know, more structural problems like, you know, what's driving, what are the root causes of of problematic substance use in the first place? What are the reasons why people are using opioids in a way that makes it more likely to to overdose? So you're starting getting into, you know, pretty complex conversations conversations around, you know, structural determinants of overdose, like uh, economic stress, and, you know, income inequality, and access to good jobs, and other kinds of things that are, you know, pretty, pretty darn complicated to fix. But that is the area of, you know, in public health, you always end up going to that structural lens and thinking about what are the, you know, what are the driving forces that are that are coming together to make a public health problem worse. And certainly those larger societies paradigms are shaping the overdose crisis in a way that makes it really complicated to deploy simple policy solutions. Yes, and that's something I really appreciated about um, your piece in the International Journal of Drug Policy and um, some of the other items that you've been highlighting, Leo, 
is the the need to just have a much broader picture here on what uh, Anne Case and Angus Deaton call you know deaths of despair, um, which are all too common. I mean, part of the the picture here. Uh, since we're running out of time, I'm just wondering if we might be able to turn to the comparative perspective, and particularly, do you think that you know looking? I, I I've definitely been inspired looking at the other countries' health policy, um, certainly more than I have looking at our policy over the past year. And I'm wondering if you if there's some low-hanging fruit out there that other countries are doing uh, that might be advisable for the U.S. to take a look at. I think the comparative perspective is really, really important. And I think that it's interesting to look at, for example, the way that Portugal has responded to an overdose crisis that they saw in the early 2000s, um, where they quickly moved to basically moved the, they, they've transitioned the response from one being focused on law enforcement and incarceration and prosecution to one focused on a kind of a comprehensive interdisciplinary coordinated response rooted in the structural approach that we were just discussing. So folks who are engaging in problematic substance use, if they come into contact with police or other government, you know, sort of tentacles of the government, I guess, uh, they're they're mandated to appear before a dissuasion, what's called a dissuasion commission that is cross-disciplinary and combines clinical folks with social workers, members of the community, um, and others to sort of talk to the person about the reason why they're engaging in problematic substance use, what the harms of those activities are, uh, both to their health as well as, you know, to the community and socially, um, and providing kind of a tailored response plan that might involve treatment if the person is, in fact, they have a substance use disorder and they can benefit from treatment, or alternatively, they might offer other kinds of resources, whether it may be employment, you know, case management for other health problems or whatever the person might be facing. So it's a case by case sort of response, but it has this architecture of kind of an open door system where you are offered a range of options. And depending on what the situation may be, you can enter through those doors with relative ease and assistance from from folks who are there to basically, you know, walk walk beside you and, and help you on your way. Now, that kind of model is, you know, seems to have really worked well in Portugal, but it, it, in many ways, it is predicated upon having those doors available to walk through. You know, in many communities in the United States, even if you deployed this kind of decriminalization approach, uh, you would still need to build up the, the social safety net architecture that we just don't have in, in, in most places. So I think that you can't have a conversation about, you know, public health response or decriminalization without talking also about the fact that, you know, many of the social safety net systems that we used to have, or maybe we didn't ever have, uh, need to be built up in order to actually, you know, bring substance to the to the response. Uh, it's not just about eliminating criminal justice penalties or uh, the involvement of law enforcement and, and the correctional system, but it's also about, you know, reinvesting 
thing in supportive structures. And that was The Week in Health Law. A big thank you to Professor Beletsky, uh, who on Twitter is at Leo Beletsky, L-E-O-B-E-L-E-T-S-K-Y. Thank you for joining us, Leo. Thanks, Nick and Frank. Really enjoyed it. We post our show notes at tool.com. I'm Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Frank, where can you be reached this week? At Frank Pasquale on Twitter. Thank you for joining us and have a legally interesting but healthy week. Thank you.